I got a chance to introduce Steve last night, but a lot of you guys weren't here last night, so I wanted to introduce him to you guys again. Uh, how many of you guys have listened to Steve's radio program? Yeah, a lot of you. That's how I first got to know Steve, and uh, we were trying to figure out the last time he was here when that was and how that whole trail led for us to actually meet, and I can't remember exactly. Uh, actually, it was before that, because in 2012, I spent a, a month out in Seattle. I was talking about when I first met him. Anyhow, it's, it's been a journey. Uh, I got a chance to spend some time with him and, and became familiar with the radio program, and I've learned so much from this guy. I'm always amazed at how generous he is. His website is flooded with tons and tons of things, and all of it is free. He doesn't charge for anything. And he's volunteered. Every time he's come here, he's volunteered to do it free of charge. His love for God is strong, and God's gifted him in a way that, that he can communicate things uh, so clearly and his depth of, of understanding is so rich that we've benefited from him several times. So if, uh, without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Steve. Hope God blesses you through him. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Alan, when he invited me to come here, also assigned me the subjects, which I'm glad uh, to be assigned them because I never know what a church needs to hear and those who are the leaders in in any given church are much more likely to know what is a word in season or a timely thing that needs to be shared. Last night we were talking about the battle for the truth, and I, and what we're talking about today actually follows pretty naturally upon what we were saying then. Uh, the title of the message that was given to me is Speaking with Those with Whom We Disagree, which can sometimes be challenging, sometimes can be unpleasant, or hopefully can be fruitful. And I would also add to that, not just speaking with them, but writing to them, since so much goes on on Facebook, so much social media interaction. A lot of times uh, there's a lot of disagreement expressed in certain social media threads, and <clears throat> it's not always the case that the Christians shine in these discussions. Uh, I have to say the non-Christians don't either, but the, the Christians are to shine as lights in a dark world, and that's not always the case. Now, in your bulletin, I noticed that my notes that I sent ahead to Alan are printed, and I just want to make this caveat. I'm going to change the order of the points in the notes, so don't get confused. You'll, it'll be easy to follow. Also, because uh, I'm a Bible teacher, not a sermonizer, really, I, I'm going to be teaching... There's a lot of Bible verses here. Now, if I had an hour and a half, I would you know, have you look up these verses with me, Instead, since we only have a short time, I'm going to just read or quote the verses, and they will go by quickly, but you have them at least in your notes. So you might say, well, I want to look that one up and look at that and think about that a little more when I get home. So you have the verses printed there, and, uh, and <clears throat> my original outline when I prepared this, but just in the time since I did that, I've decided I'm going to change the order of things. So we... there. We have to speak to people that we don't agree with. And that, of course, is a follow-up on what we were saying last night. There's a, a battle, a spiritual battle for the truth. And obviously, the opposition to truth is error. And the chief author of error is Satan. He, Jesus said he's the father of lies. In Revelation chapter 12, we see him depicted as a dragon. And a, a, a flood of water comes out of his mouth to sweep away the people of God. And it says the earth opens up its mouth and swallows the water, which apparently preserves the people of God from being 
swept away by that flood. Well, of course, this is very symbolic. Revelation tends to be that way. What comes out of the devil's mouth is a flood of lies, a flood of deception. And the world swallows his lies. But, of course, we are the ones who are supposed to not only be not swept away by those lies, but we are supposed to help deliver those who have been taken captive and, you know, and to help them discover the truth, which Jesus said will make them free. And that means we have to talk to people, not just in our little echo chamber of friends who see things the way we do. We need to engage those who have swallowed the lies. And we need to help do what we can to rescue them. We're not here just with the mission to survive and don't backslide until Jesus comes. The, the reason God didn't have us uh, drowned at the moment of our baptism, which would have been very helpful to us, I think, <laughs> is because he had something for us to do. And uh, there's a mission to accomplish. And that is, of course, as we were saying last night, the battle for the truth. But this engages us or it involves us in the obligation to engage with those with whom we do not agree. Now, I will say this. There's two different ways I could go with this. I could go with, you know, those that we don't agree with in the church. Because, frankly, sadly, Christians who agree that Jesus is Lord and, and who actually want to follow him and are, you know, have a, a high degree of unity in that particular resolve don't agree about a lot of other things, theological things. I'm going to focus rather on engaging those who are outside the church, those who aren't Christians, those that we disagree with about some of the moral issues or the cultural issues that are deceiving the world out there right now. We need to talk to them. If they don't hear it from us, they may not hear it at all. Although, of course, the principles that I'm using will, will apply also to intramural disputes within the body of Christ. We need to, we need to, of course, uh, observe the same principles. Now, I'm going to cover this under three major heads. And, and these are very simple and predictable heads. I want to talk about first what we are to speak. And then I want to talk about when we are to speak and then how we are to speak to those with whom we disagree. Now, speaking to those that we agree with or whom we love and, and who, are, uh, who we don't have conflicts with, that's not a challenge. We don't need too many special instructions about that. It's the challenge when we have a neighbor or friend or someone in our own family or someone we work with or someone at school uh, who, who's a, not a Christian and who espouses or at least lives by Mistaken notions, deception from the enemy, and they're in bondage to the enemy. We cannot leave them in that condition without seeking to intervene, and that intervention means speaking to them. Now, we can't speak to everybody. When I was growing up in the church, when preachers got up to promote an evangelistic lifestyle for the congregation, they would often quote, you know, the passage in Ezekiel where God told Ezekiel, you're watchman on the wall, if the enemy's coming and you don't sound the trumpet, and they die, their blood is on your head. But if you sound the trumpet, even if they don't repent, their blood is not on your head, but on theirs. And then, of course, the application was, we Christians know the truth. We need to tell everybody, if someone doesn't hear the truth from you and they die in their sin, that's on you. Which is a, a very good motivator, but not a very... It, it's not much help <coughs> in keeping us from feeling condemnation and a great burden 
Because that means that everyone who walks by us on the street any given day, everyone who's in our class at school, every neighbor we ever see watering their lawn, if they don't know the Lord, we have an obligation to preach to them. And if they don't get preached to by us and they happen to die and go to hell, well, that's on us. Their blood is on our head. That's a pretty heavy burden to bear. And Jesus said, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. He doesn't try to put us under bondage. Instead, he puts in our hearts the love of God for the sinner. It does not mean that we have to speak to every sinner. And there's reasons that we don't. Because, first of all, not all sinners are ready to hear. Maybe they will be later. Uh, or maybe they'll be on the point, And they'll never again be ready to hear. They've hardened their hearts. We don't know. God knows that. But we do have to speak to some people... And we need to know when to speak. We need to know what to speak. We need to know how to speak when we do so. And the the success of Christ's mission depends on Christians speaking to people who don't hold our views already, which means they disagree with us. Now, I mentioned last night, it's a, there's a new challenge in our time that didn't exist, uh, I'd say, 30 years and more ago. And that is we have the, the snowflake phenomenon where there's people who have been uh, usually university trained. Um, you you kind of have to go to a university to become this immature and this uh, clueless uh, because people who don't go to university usually learn to live in the real world. But lots of university trained people are what we call snowflakes. And what that means is they crumble in the face of anything that, that displeases them. And for anyone to say that they're wrong or even to say that I don't agree with you, it, it threatens them. It threatens them because they're insecure, because they don't know any way to defend what they believe. They don't know why they believe it. They just know they feel it. And if you don't feel it and you're not affirming it, they cave in. I mean, this is the very reason for all the pressure to put to use the right pronouns for people, because there are people who have, we are told, they're very fragile. If you don't use the right pronouns, if you don't affirm their their perceived gender identity, they might just go out and kill themselves. I mean, they're just that weak. They, they need everyone to affirm them. This is the ultimate snowflake phenomenon. That person, they don't want to hear anything they don't agree with. They don't, they don't even want to know there's people out there who don't agree with them. Why? Well, the only people who would feel that way are the people who are totally insecure about the validity of their own position. When, you're, when you know your position is true, you're not insecure. You're not afraid of challenges. You're not bothered by the fact that people disagree with you. I mean, you may feel sorry for them if their disagreement is hurting them, but but you're not threatened because you know you have the truth. But you see, the people out there you disagree with are often going to be people who don't know the truth. And they don't admit to themselves that they don't know the truth, but they prove it by being fearful of having their their truth challenged. They don't know if they're right but they hope they are and they want everyone to affirm that they are so they don't ever have to rethink the matter. But we need to talk to people like that and it's very difficult. That's very challenging. Now, what is it that we are charged to teach or to, 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 to speak to people? Well, obviously the truth. Now, the truth about what? Well, we might think, well, the gospel, of course. Yes, the gospel. But more than that, more than just the gospel, Jesus said, Go and make disciples and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. So everything Jesus has told us to do, of course, primarily we're supposed to teach people who are already converted, obviously. And and we actually can hold converted people accountable for their submission to what Jesus said. 
We can't hold the non-Christian people accountable for obeying Jesus. They haven't made any decision to do that. But that doesn't mean they don't need to hear what it is that the king has said. It doesn't mean they, they don't need to hear what's right and wrong. It's when someone hears what Christ requires that they realize that something in their life is not in sync with what Christ requires. Now, they may do nothing about it, and we can't make them do anything about it, but if they don't know, then they don't have really a chance. So we need to speak the truth. And it says in uh, Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor. Let each of you speak truth to his neighbor. Now, who is my neighbor? We know that the scribe asked Jesus that when he was trying to get out from under the conviction that he had to love his neighbor. And he didn't really want to love everybody, so he said, well, who's my neighbor? How, how narrowly can I define this? And that's where the good Samaritan parable came in. And Jesus said, well, who was a neighbor? That guy. Well, the guy who had a different religion, a different race, uh, you know, a hostile culture. The Samaritans and the Jews were that way, and they were neighbors. That's why the Samaritan did the right thing by treating the Jew like a neighbor. They, they had very little in common, but they lived on the same planet, and that made them neighbors. And Paul says we each have to speak truth to our neighbors. So it's not just the person next door, it's the people we share the planet with. Not every single one of them, you simply wouldn't get anything else done. In fact, you couldn't reach everyone. There's going to be a whole bunch of them walking by, untouched by you, you know, while you're spending time with one person. This is not to be a heavy burden. This is not to be something that, wow, you know, I'm going to have their blood on my head if I never, if, if I don't reach them all. But, of course, we need to be led by the Holy Spirit into the conversations that we're to be in. But when we have that opportunity, what we are to speak is truth. And it, it may, be, of course, be the gospel that they need to hear. And uh, But even having heard it, we may not have a chance to present the gospel fully in every encounter with somebody at work or someone we have a brief encounter with. But... It may be that we have the ability to get them questioning what they assume to be true. Because if they don't have the truth, they need to be aware that they don't have the truth. You know, one thing I like about Christian apologetics, I think, and what it really accomplishes, I think it's really something different than what many people think it is. Christian apologetics, of course, is giving arguments and evidences for your faith. And many people think, well, through apologetics, we can convince and we can make people become Christians. They've got their objections, but we can answer all their objections. We can argue into a corner where they have nothing else to do but say, okay, 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 I guess you're right. Now, I think a lot of people who study apologetics are hoping to get to the point where they can do that, get the sinner to submit by sheer force of the arguments that you present against them. But actually, people are not generally converted simply by intellectual means they're, they can they can admit that you have the best arguments just to get you off their back, but if their heart's not humble before God or wanting God, they're not going to really be converted. The value of apologetics is this, that most people believe that their own system of belief is valid. They at least have told themselves that. Again, like I said, a lot of them are not very secure in that because they can't imagine how they could possibly defend what they believe, but they feel it's valid and they want it to be valid, and they'd like to think that by believing what they do, they're not being dishonest. They're being honest people. They're living their truth. They're being honest with themselves. What Christian apologetics does is it undermines any 
intellectual basis for errors. Now, that may lead to their conversion immediately. It may not. But the ideal is that the person goes away from the encounter saying, hmm, maybe, maybe I don't have good reasons for what I believe. Maybe I'm not being that honest. I had a conversation with a young man in Australia back in 1982, I think it was. He was a university student. He came up after I spoke once to a group of young people. And he said, I'm not a believer. And I said, well, why aren't you a believer? He said, I have intellectual problems with Christianity. I said, well, okay. A lot of people say they do. What are your problems? I've got some time on my hands. And so he shared a few things, very commonplace things. It wasn't a very challenging discussion from, from the Christian side, but he, he had all the, he had certain, you know, cliche objections to Christianity, which were not difficult to discuss with him and answer. And each time he raised one, I, I brought it to a place where he admitted that my answer was valid and that his objection was not valid. And we went through several of these, and at the end I said, do you have any more intellectual objections to Christianity? He said, well, no, you've pretty much discussed them all with me. I said, well, do you want to become a Christian then? He said, no. I said, well, then you don't have any intellectual objections. You just love your sin. And he says, you know, I think you're right. And that's the last, that's how that conversation ended. Now, he didn't get converted. But I like to believe that he could never convince himself again that he was an honest unbeliever. If a person thinks they're honest and unbelievers, they're not convicted to change. They may be disabused of the idea that they're honest disbelievers by apologetics. They may say, I guess I don't really have any foundation for what I believe. I don't want to change because I still like what I believe. I'm going to go to my grave believing it, but at least I can't pretend that I'm being honest. And when people realize they're not being honest, then there's a possibility they can be convicted. Like, well, why am I not being honest? I mean, the Holy Spirit can use that. The point is to undermine the errors, the lies. You can't guarantee that somebody will be converted because you've undermined the lies, but you've given them something to think about which they cannot rest as comfortably in their position until they realize that, you know, I am rejecting what seems like it's true. And once they've come to that, they may still object and not become Christians, but I think there's, it's more likely they're going to say, you know, I'm, I, I'm really not being an honest person. Because when you speak the truth, and someone knows the truth, and you've con- convincingly presented it at your side, well then, they can still disbelieve, but they can't do so comfortably anymore. And that discomfort may be the thing the Holy Spirit uses to, to break them down and get them to someday repent. We have to speak the truth to every, to our neighbor. Now to do that, it means we have to know what we're talking about. If we're going to speak the truth, we have to know what the truth is. Now this, I think, is an important thing too with the intramural disputes in the, in the body of Christ too. Everybody thinks that their doctrine is correct and they've got their little armament of scriptures that they use. You know, if, if you're Calvinist or if you're against Calvinism, if you're dispensationalist or you're against dispensationalism, if you, uh, if you believe the gifts of the Spirit have ceased or you don't believe they've ceased, you have these different differences of opinion in the body of Christ. And each person has, if, they, if they've worked on it, if they've been trained in their denomination at least, he knows the, some of the arguments for his view. But it's obvious that somebody's wrong. When two people have opposite views, they can't both be right. Now, they could both be wrong. Everybody could be wrong, but... You can't have everybody be right if they don't agree with each other. 
No two opposing statements can both be right, which means that people who are Christians and want to know the correct doctrine will do well to humbly study the scriptures and seek to know really what's, you know, which of those arguments on which side really are valid, which ones really are what the Bible's trying to say. Now, when you're talking to non-Christians, of course, you may still use the Bible because it may be that they'll bring up the Bible. Many non-Christians, once they get a Christian in conversation with them, if they want to talk at all, they'll want to tell all the objections they have to God, you know, to things God did. Well, obviously, you better know the Word of God. You better know how to answer those. You know, it says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we need to, everyone be ready to give an answer to him that asks a reason for the hope that is in you. You need to study to show yourself approved unto God. You need to know the truth. And if you're going to talk about something that's outside the Bible, let's say you're talking about evolution or something like that, or about abortion or some other issue, you'd better know what you're talking about. It's not enough to say, well, as Christians, we don't agree with that. Well, if you can't give any reason why we shouldn't agree with it, except that we're Christians, what you're really communicating to them, they think they're right, and they say, well, that means Christians aren't thinkers. Christians don't care about the truth. They just believe what they believe because they believe it. If they were Mormons, they'd believe that because they were Mormons. But, you know, what does the truth What is the truth? Well, knowing your material, knowing your subject is very valuable. Luke, for example, when he opened his gospel, writing to a man who was quite possibly not quite converted, Theophilus, it looks like he was converted by the time Paul, uh, the, Luke wrote Acts to the same man, but when he was writing Luke to the man, he wanted to tell the story of Jesus, and what, here's how Luke opens it. He says, and, and you probably know this passage, Luke 1, 3 through 4, he says, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Theophilus had heard something about Jesus, had been instructed, but Luke wanted him to be certain about it, so he said, listen, I'm an expert on the subject. I've looked into this. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've had a long time to expose myself to the data, and I'm coming to you from a place of having full understanding of these things. In others, I have some expertise, and I can tell you where my expertise comes from, and, and therefore you can have confidence that what I'm telling you is true. In Acts 26, 25, Paul said to uh, Festus, he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. See, Paul was talking to Agrippa and with Festus present, and Festus burst out and said, Paul, your much learning has made you mad. And Paul said, no, I'm not mad, Festus. I speak the words of truth and reason. What I'm saying is true, and it's reasonable. And you yourself have told me I have much learning. You think my learning has made me mad. No, my much learning has made me reasonable. And I have reasons for what I believe. I happen to know the facts of the case. It's truth. And obviously you can't, with every person, take all the time to say all the reasons you believe something to be true. But just make sure that if you're in a discussion where you're confronting someone who doesn't know the truth, and you're presenting the truth, you need to make sure that that you have the truth, that you're not going to present something that they can later say, oh, you, you were wrong about that. I found out the truth of the matter. It wasn't what you said. Um, we have to know our subject if we're going to speak the truth. We also have to be sure that we have a biblical basis for our convictions. 
In Proverbs 22, verses 20 through 21, Solomon said, Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge that I may make you know, he says, the, the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you. When you speak to somebody who needs to hear the words of truth, he says, I've written to you in Scripture the kinds of things that will make you certain. If you have the Scripture on your side, you can be certain. Now, of course, you can't convince an unbeliever necessarily by quoting Scripture because they don't hold the assumption you have that the Scripture is an authority. But you have to at least know that the Scripture is on your side. If you have the Scripture on your side and you believe that's the words of truth, then you can speak with confidence and you can speak without intimidation and know that no one can prove you wrong because if you're right, no one can prove you wrong. And you can know the certainty of what you're saying. That's important. Know that the Scripture's on your side. And it's also good, I think, for you to know your opponent's position, if possible. When I talk to cultists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, whatever, it's helpful that I, I know something about what they believe already. Now, you can't know what all the cults believe about every subject. You, you don't have enough lifetimes to study them all out. Sometimes... You have to ask them what it is they believe. You know, well, what do you think about this? What's your position on this? But you need to know what it is their position is before you can answer it. A lot of times you might have your own little prepared spiel you want to give to somebody, and it's not addressing anything that they really believe. It's, you know, you're, you're just kind of wasting your ammunition in a, in, a, in a bunch of shrubs where there's no enemy over there, you know? You need to be aware of where your enemy is standing or where the opponent stands before you can address where they stand. And I'd also say this, the Bible makes it very clear, you shouldn't feel compelled to speak everything you know. I'm counseling a couple that's going to get married next week, and I was talking to the, the guy who's getting married, and I said, you know, what are the kinds of things that have proven to be conflicts between you and, and your intended? And he said, well, she's a little irritated by a habit I have. He said, I've always had it, that if I hear something that's wrong, I feel like I have to correct it. Maybe you're one of those people, too, or you know someone who's like that. He's zealous for the truth, so much so that he can't let anything go by. But, you know, I mean, in a sense, it's good to be zealous for the truth that way, but you kind of have to pick your battles. If you talk to an unbeliever for ten minutes, you're going to hear ten things you don't agree with. It's possible. You can't address them all. The conversation will go nowhere. It'll be stalling. You have to know when to speak and when to say, well, that's the battle. I'm not going to fight here. I'm not going to die on that hill here today. I need to know what the main thing is this person's got ignorance about or deception and try to address something like that. But it says uh, in Proverbs 17, 27, he who has knowledge spares his words and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. You don't feel like, oh, he said something wrong. I need to, I need to jump in and make sure he, you know, he doesn't think I, I agree with him on that. No, you can have a calm spirit. You can be unthreatened by things he says. I mean, you can't change every wrong opinion that that person has in one conversation. A man who has knowledge spares his words. He realizes that a few words spoken powerfully and cogently and relevantly makes a lot more difference in, in the impact you have than just a lot of blather and letting people know how much you know. In Proverbs 29, 11, it says, A fool vents all his feelings. I think the King James says, A fool speaks his whole mind. But a wise man holds them back. There's an impulse that we have sometimes, especially if we're proud, 
that we want to make sure we can tell them, we can show them we know everything that's wrong about them. We have an answer for every phrase in their sentence that we don't agree with. Hold it back until you've got something to say that's going to make a point rather than make the point that you know everything. You don't have to say everything you know. You don't have to demonstrate everything you know. Okay, so when you speak, speak the truth. Speak the truth that needs to be spoken, not every truth that you can imagine, not everything you've ever learned. Don't correct everything that is, needs correction necessarily in one conversation, but make sure that you're presenting the truth so that their errors are addressed. Now, when should we speak? I mean, that raises the question. I'm not supposed to say everything I could say. When should I say something? Well, first of all, if I happen to be a parent or an instructor or somebody asks me a question, that's a time when I should say something. As a parent, I need to say something to my children if they get something wrong. Now, I'll tell you, when your kids are 30 years old, you don't have to address everything that they've said wrong, especially if they know your beliefs and have known them all their lives. If they're starting to go astray, yeah, you're going to have to try to be involved in trying to bring them back around. But you have to also realize that everything you believe, they probably have already heard. And just saying it again isn't necessarily going to make it be more convincing to them. If they know what you believe and, and they're spouting off stuff in your presence that they know you don't believe, they're probably trying to get a rise out of you. They're trying to probably confirm that you're some kind of a bigot who can't tolerate what someone else believes and to show them that you're not really uh, alarmed. I mean, you, you may be. You may be really alarmed at things your kids are saying. But if, if the thing you have to say that would correct them is something so obvious they knew you think that, they're just trying to jab at you, then there's times to just not speak up. But but as a parent, especially of younger children who, who are being formed, uh, to speak the truth to them is an obligation, obviously, when the need arises. Or if you're a teacher, obviously you're in the position to have to teach the truth. Or if someone asks you a question, those are times when, of course, you have to speak. But in general, we need to speak the truth when the time is right, when it's the right timing. It says in Proverbs 15:23, a word spoken in due season, how good it is. In due season means at the right time. In fact, there's a messianic prophecy where Jesus is thought to be speaking in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, where Jesus says, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear. He gives me the, the tongue of the learned. Now, Jesus spoke a word in due season to people. He, he knew when to speak. He knew what was the right thing to speak at that moment. That's speaking a word in due season. That's something we need to pray that we'll be able to do. Now, what is due season? How do we know what is you know, the right time? Oh, well, one is when you, you have somebody you're talking to that's receptive. Someone who disagrees may not be receptive even to any correction whatsoever, in which case, don't waste your time. Jesus himself said, of course, don't cast your pearls before swine or give what is holy to dogs. Why? Because pigs and dogs can't appreciate holy things or valuable things, like, like pearls. He said, if you cast your pearls before swine, they'll just get angry at you and they'll come and charge you. They won't like you. Don't do it. Don't waste it. What is a swine then? What is a, what is a dog in that connection? It's obviously somebody who's not of a mind to appreciate the value of what you're talking about. 
They don't want it. They don't want the truth. Well, it's not a good time. That's not in season for them. Maybe God will work on them and at a later date in their life, they'll be more eager. But at the moment, if they're, you can tell when talking to somebody, they're just, they've got a wall up. They're going to just ignore what you say. Don't bother. There's people out there who are being prepared by the Holy Spirit to hear and, uh, and just recognize there's not time to speak to this person. It's not a good time. Proverbs said the same thing. I think Jesus was basically saying the same thing Solomon said, only in different words. Solomon said in Proverbs 23, 9, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. You may be speaking valuable words, but if he's a fool who doesn't care about the truth, he'll just despise it. So don't bother. Don't mess with it. You should also speak when to not do so is a dereliction of duty. In other words, when you really have to speak. It's, it, you know it's not going to go over well, or you think it might not go over well, but there's no, no, you can't let someone go. They're going to, about to r- jump off a cliff, you know? Right now, Frank, I'll, I'll tell you frankly, I've counseled a number of people, primarily, and, uh, and seen that they were about to make a huge mistake. And I'm so loath to tell them. I, it's obvious that this is a mistake because you so much want to do it. And uh, you came for premarital counseling, but I know you don't want to hear what I want to say. And probably, no matter what I say, you probably won't do it if it's not what you already have decided. But I've got to tell you anyway. I don't want to because I know that may alienate us. You don't want to hear it, but I don't want you to make that mistake and, and then say, Steve, why didn't you warn me about this? You know? But there are times when it's a dereliction of duty not to speak because somebody's in error and, and it may be uh, urgent to turn them away from it. In Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, of course, Peter and the apostles were told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, but Peter and John answered and said then, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This is something that we have no choice in the matter. We have been commanded, and this is something that we have a duty to speak, and we're going to have to speak it, even if you don't like it. I'll try to make it sweet, but it may not go down well. In Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, the prophet said he didn't like being unpopular for all the things he was saying. He said, so I said, I will not make mention of God nor speak any more in his name. But he said, his word was in my heart like a burning fire that shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding back and I could not. I saw the emergency. I didn't want to say anything because I knew it wouldn't be popular. But I just had to say it. It was like the word of God was burning in me. I couldn't hold back. It would have been criminal neglect for me not to speak to the situation. Now, of course, you also need to speak when the Holy Spirit prompts you. It's interesting that all other things may point to the opportunity to speak, and yet you'll feel a check in your spirit saying, I just don't feel the peace. I don't think God wants me to speak this. People who are those kind who have to correct everybody about everything are the ones who really need to mind those checks. But also, people who are reluctant to speak need to mind the urging of the Spirit to speak. It's when the Holy Spirit leads us that we will speak powerful, anointed words to the people who need to hear them. Jesus said in Mark 13, 11, But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given in that hour, 
speak that, for it's not you that speak, but the Holy Spirit. Say what the Spirit leads you to say, when he leads you to say it. We find Paul confronting the false prophet in Cyprus, a guy named Elymas, and says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Now, I got a feeling that wasn't a well-received comment. You know, you're a son of the devil. You're full of all deceit. You're as evil as they come. You're black as hell. Okay, but Paul said, it says he was filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was making him speak on that occasion, or at least urging him. He couldn't rightly hold back. So when should I speak? I should speak when the person seems to be receptive. Or even if they're not, when I feel I have a a duty to speak here because no one else is saying the truth in this situation, someone needs to. Or especially when we feel the urging of the Holy Spirit, because it's, of course, at that time that we can be sure that there will be a a power behind our words because the Holy Spirit is urging it. Now, finally, I want to talk about how to speak. Talk about what to speak, when to speak, and how to speak. Well, the answer to that is best found in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25, where Paul said, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Well, that's what we're hoping, that they will know the truth and that they may be granted repentance. And Paul goes on to say, and they can recover themselves from the snare of the devil. That's important too. Now, he said the servant of the Lord has to talk to people about the truth, but he says the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. There's kind of four things he said here about how we're supposed to do this. Don't quarrel. Speak gently, he said. Be patient and speak humbly. And I guess these are the four last points I want to make very quickly. I realize the time. When he said don't be quarrelsome, that doesn't mean don't argue. Arguing is not always quarreling. Debates are not necessarily quarreling. I have participated in debates against lots of different kinds of people. I've debated atheists, I've debated Calvinists, I've debated all kinds of people who have different views on things, but I never will debate anyone that I don't feel fond toward. I I don't want to debate anyone that I don't like, because I don't want to be tempted to to be quarrelsome or to be to to have a spirit of one-upsmanship. The idea of a debate, in my opinion, is it's an educational experience. You get to hear, hopefully, the best arguments for this side and, and for that side. Then you get to think about it and make up your own decision. To me, it's, it's a very academic thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's not a quarreling thing. For some people, it is. If they really don't like their opponent or they're very angry at, at the position that they're debating about, you have to be able to not be quarrelsome because quarreling is striving. And when you're striving with a person, it's not always over, it's not always the truth versus the error, even if you have the truth on your side and they don't. It's often personalities striving. And when the personalities start bumping up, you've lost your audience. You, you, you've lost your credibility. You, you may be saying the, the wisest things that can be said, but there's a personality thing going there because you've offended them or they feel offended or something. And, and you need to be, like Paul said, not quarreling. Quarreling is everyone just trying to, you know, 
contradict what the other person says and so forth. It's not really an educational situation. It's more of a, I need to win. If I, if I don't have the last word here, you'll think you were right and I was wrong and I'm simply too proud to let anyone think that. So I got a quarrel, I got to just get into a fight. In Proverbs 17:14, it says, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel begins. Now, sometimes it starts out as a calm discussion, and you can tell it's escalating, and somebody's answering back, there's more of an edge in their voice, there's more of a raised volume of their voice, and you can say, oh, a quarrel is starting here. This started as contending over a point, which can be very non-personal. It can be very much just talking about this idea and this idea without any bad feelings toward each other, but stop the contention before the quarrel starts. Because he says starting a quarrel <clears throat> is like letting out water, like, like loosing a flood. Once you've loosed a flood, you're not going to get that put back away easy. You know, that, that's, you, you've got the situations out of your control now. You're, it's not what you want. You don't want a flood. You want, you know, to give some fresh water in quantities that they don't have to feel like they're drinking from a fire hose or a flood. It says in Proverbs 20 and verse 3, it's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. Anyone can start a fight. Anyone can start a quarrel. Any fool can do that. The wise man is the one who knows when it's time to stop striving. It's a very important thing. You stop striving with someone when a quarrel is beginning to develop. Paul said the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Debate, yes. Argue? Yes, if arguing means presenting arguments. But arguments don't have to be presented in a quarrelsome way. If it starts getting there, it's time to back out of that. And keep that in mind when you're posting on Facebook discussions and things like that. A lot of people, they just go there to fight. And you might you may just present a true statement, post a meme that's perfectly reasonable, and if, if enough people see it, someone's going to get in there and want to start a fight with you about it. Well, you can debate them. You can tell them, you can answer their arguments, but when you can see, they don't want to hear your arguments. They just want to show off how snarky they can be. Well, they can say, okay, I, I'll give you the last word on that. You have to, you have to be wrong, but I'm, I'm just not going to keep quarreling about this. Paul said it must be in gentleness. What is gentleness? Well, it's just not being aggressive. It's not being harsh. In Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a fault or a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this is it's a given the person you're dealing with is wrong, and you know they're wrong, and you're there to restore them. You're not there to win a battle against them. You're there to redeem them, to restore them to the right way. And he says, do that in a spirit of gentleness. Make sure that your words are sweet. In some cases, you may have to eat them. It'd be a lot easier if they were sweet in the first place. But sometimes you overspeak or you speak out of turn, and then you're going to have to come back humbly and say, ah, "Well, yeah, I, I guess I overstated my position here, or that I was a little too, you know, snarky there, or whatever." I have to apologize for that. Be gentle. In Proverbs 15:1, it says, "A soft answer turns away wrath, and harsh words stir, stir up anger." So gentleness. And Paul said. In patient, being patient with the person. That means that you don't expect them to immediately see your point. 
you hope they may, you hope they'll be that smart, but the truth is once you present your point, if they're not seeing it, and they're not just trying to be deflecting, they're not trying to ignore the truth, but they're just not convinced, just realize sometimes it took you a while to learn some things too. If you've ever changed your mind on any subject that you that matters to you, you probably didn't do it in an instant. You probably did it over time. It also means <clears throat> being patient with someone that you're ready to listen to them and you don't feel like you have to, I have to jump in here, I have to jump in here, I have to say this. No, being patient means you'll listen to them if they don't hear you, if they don't agree with you. You're not insisting on instantaneous agreement. James 1, 19 through 20 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, be slow to speak. It's, it's always good to be slow to speak. I don't think you'll very often be, you'll, I don't think you'll very often regret leaving a conversation if you were slow to speak. If, if you speak impulsively, you probably will regret something later. I remember Thomas Akempis in the book of The Imitation of Christ, he said, how seldom I leave any conversation without having something to regret that I said, you know? And there'll be a lot less of that if you listen more, you're slow to speak, quick to hear, and if you're slow to speak, you'll actually be able to speak something more worth saying in more of a patient spirit. And of course, Paul said humbly, he used the word humble in that passage in Second Timothy. And I would just say about that, in humility, you admit, you know, I don't know everything. I, what I see from what I've researched, I believe what you're saying is not correct. But I realize I'm not the absolute standard of all truth. And neither are you. We both need to consider that we could be wrong, but we better make sure we have the best reasons for believing what we do. But I don't have to answer every objection so that you'll know that I can. That's just my pride. I don't have to have the last word in the conversation so that you'll know that you didn't win. No, that's just pride too. In humility, you're not there to make a reputation for yourself of being brilliant or a great debater. You're there to win. You can often win an argument and not win the soul of the person. And winning the argument, you walk away saying, boy, I showed him. Yeah, but he didn't get saved, and he might not be any closer to being saved than he was before the conversation, in which case you got nothing to be proud about. Be humble and realize that, first of all, people don't have to agree with you. People have many times said to me, how is it that you're so patient with people who call you, who, who argue with you on, on the radio? My position is, I mean, to me, the answer seems obvious. They don't have any obligation to agree with me. Nobody has any obligation to agree with me about anything. Of course, we all have the obligation to believe what we believe is true and to, and to seek the truth. But no, nowhere in the Bible does it say, agree with Steve Gregg. Steve Gregg's just another person who's looking for the truth and trying to understand it and, and present it. If someone doesn't see it that way, that's their privilege. They'll answer to God for what they see and believe, but they don't have any obligation. I, I don't hold anyone up to that requirement, so I, I get along fine with a lot of people who don't agree with me, but I like to speak to them. And that's the last point I want to make, is that in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, and probably some of you were thinking of this verse earlier and thought, why didn't Steve bring this up? 
It's where Paul said we need to speak to one another the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up. The truth has to be spoken, and it's a loving thing to tell the truth. But the, the loving thing can be done in an unloving way, and that's the important thing. The person has to know that you haven't just engaged them in a debate so that you can show that you know more than they do, or that you're better than they are. If they feel that, they're going to get their back up, and no matter how true your, uh, your thoughts are, they just won't want to hear them or won't want to submit. But if they know that you love them, if they can tell that you are only concerned about them, again, they may not be converted, but at least there's more hope that they will if they realize that this argument is not a contest to show who's smarter, who's more right. It's a, an effort to restore them to a, a, a better grasp of what's true so they can be set free. So making sure that we are motivated by love. If we're not motivated by love, stay out of the conversation. If you can't say, I would die for this person's salvation if I could. Like Paul said, I give up my, I, I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren. You know, if you don't have that kind of love for someone, you better get that first before you engage in arguments with them because you'll probably do more damage than good if you just jump in there for a fight because you know you can or because you know you've got better points. That's not the important thing. The important thing is for people to actually see and enjoy and to receive the truth. And uh, so that's that would be my final point this morning. And I've gone longer than I hoped I would. But Alan, you want to come up and do what you do at the end here? Thank you. If you would bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, again, thank you for the words uh, that, that Steve shared with us and the wisdom of how to speak to other people. I found a lot of useful things that he said today that I can take to heart and try to apply. Father, we just want to get better at recognizing your truth, being obeying, being obedient to it, and being skillful at sharing that truth with other people. Father, it's hard to be persuasive if we're abrasive. And so many times, I think that Steve nailed that down pretty good. Father, help us not to be abrasive, but to be lovers of you that cause us to be lovers of other people. Father, we want your kingdom to grow. We want and need your light, more of it, in the places where we live and in this nation. And, uh, Father, I know you want to use us to make that happen. Uh, Father, I pray that you'll, you'll mature us, shape us, and empower us and lead us where you need us to go so that you can have your way both with us and the people around us. It's in Jesus' name we're praying. Amen.